1: Welcome
2: to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amari Averett-Phillips, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Charles L. Chavis Jr. about his new book, The Silent Shore, The Lynching of Matthew Williams, and the Politics of Racism in the Free State. Dr. Charles Chavis, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Uh,
0: So, Dr. Chavis, I wonder if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Sure, sure. I am a historian who also um, practices peace building and racial justice um, in Fairfax, Virginia. I'm a professor at George Mason University, and I'm also a vice chair for the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so a lot of my work focuses not only on history, but connecting history to the present as we seek racial justice.
0: Wonderful, great. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this, this book. This, I wonder if you could talk a bit about your experiences researching this book and what brought you to this topic.
2: Sure. So my research um, began in a similar position that you're in as a doctoral student, a PhD student, um, early on as a doctoral student in the history department at Morgan State University. I began to wonder about the history of racial violence, specifically racial terror lynchings in Maryland. Um, Originally from North Carolina, um, a little further south, um, and I always uh, was intrigued by the um, hyper emphasis that was placed on states such as Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, et cetera, pertaining to racial terror lynchings. And I wonder what um, the legacy of racial terror um, was in um, upper in upper south in the upper south specifically in baltimore and in border states such as maryland and so um, with that i began researching the last documented cases of racial terror lynching in maryland Um, and this ironically was right around the time of the freddie gray incidents um, that were taking place in baltimore Um, and while i was doing this doctoral work um, and research I was also working as a museum educator in Baltimore City, um, working with six, young sixth graders um, at the Lily Carol Jackson um, Middle School, and the museum was that I worked at was the Lily Carol Jackson Civil Rights Museum, named after a freedom fighter um, and civil rights activist from the 1930s, um, who was the NAACP president for the Baltimore City chapter. Um, she was an anti-lynching advocate, and it was an anti-lynching museum, and I was arrested Um, while, um, you know, being bombarded daily with the, working with the students, and constantly they would um, look at the replica of the, um, a man was lynched yesterday flag that hangs from that museum. Um, And they would reflect on their current experience witnessing um, the death of um, Freddie Gray um, being discussed throughout their communities. And they asked, one day asked me and the director, Dr. Iris Barnes, was Freddie Gray lynched, right? Um, And and this really is important to understand in terms of the context out of which the research that I was doing was taking place. I sought out to dispel this myth um, that lynching somehow ended um, in the 1930s or has a specific deadline. And I sought out to salvage the humanity of one of the last two victims of racial terror lynching in Maryland, um, that um, of Matthew Williams in 1931.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so I wonder if we could just get into Sir sort of Matthew Williams. So could you explain the circumstances that are surrounding his lynching and how the communities both white and black re- responded to the event?
2: in order to understand the case of Matthew Williams, we have to understand what was going on in the country at the time. And so um, the case of Matthew Williams took place, the lynching of Matthew Williams took place in 1931, during, right at the beginning of the Great Depression. Um, If we zoom out a little bit outside of Maryland, we recognize that there's a pattern that is emerging during um, this interwar era, specifically at the beginning of the uh, Great Depression the assault on black laborers throughout the country is taking place. And ironically, during the same time, same year that Matthew Williams is lynched, you have just in Alabama, the Scottsboro boys who are um, dealing with um, potential um, murder charges for these alleged crimes. Again, black laborers who are directly targeted during the, this era and this period. Matthew Williams a, fir- a little further north in, in Maryland is also um, caught up in this alleged um, assault um, and this victimization associated with black laborers that we see taking place throughout um, the, the country at this time. And it was very interesting when I just soon discovered that the same organizations representing, the Scottsboro Boys were representing um, black laborers on Maryland's Eastern shore who were being targeted, um, for this, this, this violence, alleged violence that they were, um, um, committing onto their, um, employers. Right. And so there was a number of cases, not just Matthew Williams that are directly tied to, um, again, this, this national, um, movement that we see emerging direct to, directly towards, um, attacking black laborers and, one of the things that I learned from Professor Sherilyn Eiffel um, is that you don't get a pass for um, not finishing the job, right? And so a lot of um, people don't focus on the ways in which um, the psychological and physical violence of lynchings um, and racial terror um, are not always directly connected to the completion of the specific act, right? Um, lynchings, um, as I'll, as I'll probably say more than once, they were message crimes, and they put communities, both um, communities, on notice and reinforce the racial hierarchy in ways that law enforcement um, and other um, bodies of government um, were, were not able to do so. And so, um, Matthew Williams is the victim of racial terror, white racist, and racial terror. During this period, however, um, in doing the research, I discovered that there were a number of near lynchings that took place leading up to his case, which um, really served um, as fuel for the angered poor whites in this region. Angered um, poor whites in this region who were looking for um, a black, uh, vulnerable black male to pay the price for. Um, those who had gotten off. And that's one of the things that's also important to understand as well. The very fact that lynchings are racial terror lynchings are understood as extra legal um, outside of the bounds of the law. And so you had a number of, one of the things that really angered these um, white um, members of the white community was the fact that at this point, you had both through the NAACP and through organizations such as the International Labor Defense, you had blacks who were now gaining representation and they were somehow getting their days in court. Um, and this angered um, white communities and it really caused them to push, um, to really, they caused a resurgence of racial terror lynchings that emerged because the law, the law was moving too slow um, and as a result, lynchings, um, were being, um, committed and this was definitely the case with the case of Matthew Williams, who allegedly to get to your question, answer your question the long way, um, he was, again, he got in a dispute, um, with his employer, uh, um, over discrepancies in his pay. Um, and, uh, allegedly he shot his employer and then shot himself, um, and, um, somehow uh, ended up in the hospital and this is where a mob descended on the hospital and um, murdered Matthew Williams. However, after doing investigation, additional investigation and discovering the records um, that I'll discuss in a few minutes here, we recognized that and began to uncover um, something that is a little closer to the truth in which um, we discovered that Matthew Williams had loaned um, the employ his employer Daniel Elliott's son money during the Great Depression, and Matthew was going to go to the father um, after Daniel Jr. failed to pay his debts to Williams, and um, it's all laid out in the book. But it's really um, important um, important part of the story because all of this is alleged crimes, and we we also I discovered contemporaneous as well as um, additional interviews from both white and blacks that refute this original story that Williams um, killed his employer. Um, and so a lot of what I do is um, I employ forensic reconstruction to um, lay all of the evidence out that I discovered to um, get, again, close uh, closer to the truth and to provide um, a, a formal investigation, even if it is on paper. Um, to for the descendants of Matthew Williams and his community.
0: And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this process of forensic reconstruction that you uh, went through in terms of finding these, uh, these documents that are closer to the truth and then laying out that process. What was that like?
2: Sure. And so um, to get there, we have to really begin to understand that, um, again, my main focus was to salvages the humanity of the victim. And it's very difficult to do that specifically when you're trying to document um, the life um, and story of black um, victims and black, any black people specifically in this context who are being um, victimized um, just because of the nature of um, our, not only the sources, but also the our institutions in terms of our archival institutions. I'll get to archival institutions uh, in one second, but, um, one of the things that I show my students, specifically in regards to cases of racial terror lynchings, I show them the coverage in predominantly in black newspapers or the black press, and I show them um, coverage in the white press. Um, and all almost all of all of the time, you'll see within the white press these historical characterizations that have you know in many ways not gone away. Where the individual who is lynched or murdered um is always defined by their alleged crime we know nothing of their humanity their family and so in writing this book i sought out to as i mentioned salvage that humanity by really trying to figure out the human story um associated with these individuals and thank goodness for the black press because of their coverage that was one of the the, that the black press served as the pillar and the foundation for the ways in which I employ this forensic reconstruction. I also um, received a a great nudge, or um, I don't want to call it luck, but it was a blessing in many ways to discover um, records that had been hidden in the state archives for 90 years that um, include records of um, eyewitnesses to this lynching, um, police records, police statements, as well as um, from both black and white witnesses, as well as a um, journal, daily journal from an undercover Pinkerton detective agent who actually infiltrates the mob. And so with these records, um, I'm able to, I was able to pull all of these different sources together and reconstruct the narrative um, associated with the lynching, but also the lynching's aftermath. Um, And so, literally going statement by statement um, and laying out the story is what I was able to do. However, the most difficult um, task was again, focusing on centering the humanity of those involved. And I did that by using genealogical resources and tools to make sure that um, we had a full picture of the individuals, all all of those involved. Um, in this case, and what they were bringing specifically to um, their um, interpretations of those events.
0: Wonderful. And so, getting back to Matthew Williams lynching, uh, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the afterlife of the lynching, um, and you know, take that however it is that you will. I know it becomes a political issue. Um, sort of what what life does this sort of lynching take on after the fact?
2: So the lynching. Um, is really what I argue in in my book. It served as this um, uh, match that really lit the flames of um, needed to destroy, systemically destroy a black community. At at this point, um, you know, with everything we saw in terms of Tulsa, and I talk about this in the introduction of my book about the ways in which white supremacy evolves uh, um, to survive. And we recognize at this period that the blatant massacre and racial terror that we saw in Tulsa was no longer acceptable um, to white society. And so there had to be some other way, I argue, through systemic means to dismantle and to destroy black communities in a way that um, was far more effective. Um, than these blatant um, acts of racial terror in terms of the long run. And so um, it was at that point that I discovered that the lynching of Matthew Williams was um, utilized, was the foundation in the beginning of a more strategic, sinister plan to dismantle and to destroy a Black business district in this region of the Maryland's eastern shore. This, this um, community was known as the Georgetown a neighborhood a Black business district Um, not on the same scale as Greenwood, but a black business district nonetheless that found a way to survive and thrive during the Great Depression. This angered whites, um, you know, they had their own bank. Um, um, You know, it it was a very prominent community that Matthew Williams was a part of. Um, It's no coincidence that um, the mob actually displayed his body at the entrance of Georgetown, um, putting all the black people on notice in this community um, and it's documented in the notes and the statements of the individuals um, who confessed to the lynching um, that blacks in this region were getting out of line and they you know, didn't know their place. And so right after that, if you track the records, I began to, uh, most recently we began discovering records from um, post, post-lynching, post 1931 to 1932, where there are literal literally maps that we've discovered from real estate developers directly connected to members of the mob that are targeting, annotating all of the Black businesses and Black homes in this district and in this area. Um, and so in 1931, there were around 19 um, Black businesses in this Georgetown community, in this district, to this day, there's only one building that remains, and that's the Charles Chipman Cultural Center, the formerly John Wesley United Methodist Church, of which Matthew Williams was a member. Um, even the bodies in the black cemetery were exhumed, um, about to make way for highway expansion. This um, assault um, and lynching really is the first phase of what will what will come will will become to be known as this. Guise of urban renewal that we see taking place throughout Black communities um, in this country, and it's also important to recognize as well that you know as much as people um, we would like to think that Tulsa, that um, Greenwood uh, was destroyed wholly, wholly um, in 1921, um, like most Black communities, Green, Greenwood would rebuild um, not never to their original. Um, capacity or the original success, but they rebuilt, nonetheless, rising from these, the ashes, only to be systemically targeted in the 50s and 60s through the same strategies and policies that we saw targeting Black communities throughout this country under the guise of um, of uh, urban renewal. Um, and, um, and so that's what we see in this community. And we see a terror and continued silence um, amongst members of this community who I work with to this day regarding um, the lynching um, as well as the oppression that the black community continues to face.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory
0: And so Maryland's position as a border state seems to sort of complicate traditional perspectives on racial violence. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the role of Maryland, where that sort of stands in the way that we typically think about sort of traditional, to, for lack of a better term, sort of racial violence and how that sort of manifests within your work.
2: Yes, yes. So some some call Maryland the unicorn, some call Maryland um... The middle ground, I go with the middle ground. Barbara Jean Fields does a great job of characterizing this, um, you know, Maryland's unique culture, specifically as it relates to um, black and white relations. Um, I always point back to Maryland's uh, uh, large free black population um, that really provides a foundation for a, uh, in some ways, a volatile, undercover, volatile animosity between um, whites um, and Blacks. And in a way, you did not have the same resources, and you did not have the same systems in place or culture in place that you did in Mississippi that reinforced the racial hierarchy, right? Um, specifically, when you think about the free Black population in, um, in Baltimore and in Maryland. Um, and so oftentimes, poor whites were forced to see and forced to work alongside or even be in contact with free Blacks who um, were who had a certain level of success that other um, their counterparts did not have in the deep south, and so I think that has a lot to do with this. Um, has it provides a foundational, unique type of tension um, between blacks and whites that we see um, grow and grow and fester, and we see these um, correlations between the economic depravity, economic um, violence, um, with the uptick in racial violence and racial terror um, that correlate with national economic um, downturns, but they also correlate as well in the state of Maryland. So when we look at 1890s, for example, the cases of racial terror lynching um, with um, the economic depression of that era, we move to 29 and onward with the Great Depression. You see this rise in animosity in these communities in the upper South, specifically um, in Maryland, that you necessarily would not think would would take place um, in, in this area. And so, one of the, also another important distinction as well is the region of the Eastern Shore. And so, historically, um, it's important to understand that this specific region of the Eastern Shore, um, uh, Salisbury, Maryland, was a part of um, this area called this region called Delmarva. Delmarva during the, um, so it's literally on the peninsula, you have the Maryland, you have Maryland, um, Virginia, and Delaware on this peninsula. And during the civil war, this specific um, area sought to secede from the union and sided with the Confederacy. So you have this same type of spirit and culture you know, Maryland may be upper South and may be in close proximity to Washington, D.C., but you had a spirit of, Um, that was um, very similar to the Deep South, and some local historians um, argue and articulate that was present in um, Salisbury and in in the Eastern Shore and in this region. Um, um, Also, it was not until 1950 that the uh, the 1950s that the Bay Bridge um, 50s and 60s connected the um, Western Shore to the Eastern Shore, um, which was very important. Because in many ways, this area of maryland was cut off from the um more populated and more progressive um Mm -hmm. communities of baltimore city um and um, so so there's a lot there in terms of maryland but i think uh, from a historian's perspective in terms of looking at the historic historiography excuse me i um, was really concerned at this hyper emphasis that i saw that sought to um, sought to focus specifically on areas that and, and states that had these high numbers um, associated with um, racial terror lynchings in terms of documented cases. And it reminded me, as I talk about in the book, of what we saw with the, in the transatlantic slave trade um, in terms of the numbers game um, that Josephine Corey and Philip Curtin engage in specifically around um, quantifying and counting Black bodies in that, there is a dehumanization that takes place and we somehow um, equate the amount of cases to the um, there's a hyperemphasis placed on the amount of cases versus the human story behind each incident. And so and what Maryland tells you with these specific cases that um, what was happening in Mississippi, and in Alabama and in the deep south, was almost um, the exact same thing happening in terms of the form, structure, and cultures associated with um, racial racial terror lynchings and these spectacle lynchings that we saw 40 or so take place in the state of Maryland.
0: And this hyper-focus that you talk about in terms of focusing upon certain areas uh, that have had this sort of racial terror and lynching happening... uh, Versus other areas where this happened as well, such as in your book, why why do you think that's so persistent still within sort of the historiography?
2: Well, I think um, it's it's so much easier to um, build on what's where the focus is. I think what what I try to do with my students is to um, train them as I as I articulate in my book to be salvaging experts, and I also think again you have to think about. Um, the individual and human story. So and yes, we have over, you know, 5,000 cases of documented racially terror, racial terror lynchings in the US, but each one of those cases ind- represents one individual, one story. Um, and instead of focusing um, on the overall impact of, you know, the scope and scale of racial terror lynchings, um, we, we lose insight into the humanity of the victims and the psychological and physical damage that one incident um, brings to an individual's family as well as um, their community. Um, and so I think it is just a part of, again, while well, I think it's similar to what we saw with the um, slave, slave trade, <clears throat> the middle passage um, research. I think it's just um, we are infatuated in with numbers and being able to, you know, quantify um, suffering based on the amount of documented cases, which I think is problematic, I think, but it's a lot easier um, as well because there's more research. Um, and so for historians, oftentimes who want to get into a specific topic or a specific area. You know, I spent six years documenting this one specific case. Um, and, you um, people ask me about other cases of lynchings in Maryland and I'm very direct with them um, my area you know is 1931 to 33 I'm focusing on the lynching of Matthew Williams specifically and the related lynchings in this region you know it's it's I don't purport to be an expert on racial terror lynching throughout the country or um, you know throughout the region um, and I think that's very important for historians to be honest about that because if we're going to do the, the work um, um, we have to be able to make sure that we're doing the work alongside and with the support of um, descendant communities, which is what I, which is which are the communities that I center in my work. And so um, even before this book was completed, um, the my main objective, once I discovered these records and the story, I sought out to identify the any living um, collateral or len, linear descendants of um, uh, Matthew Williams um, and it literally was right around the time I began to close the book out that I finally um, was able to get in contact with a relative of Matthew Williams, and they have been helping and guiding this process and this work, the current work that we're doing to, uh, to support this uh, racial justice in this community. Uh, and so I think that's very important as well. But again, this, this is uh, something that historians, we have to, we have to begin to recognize is necessary um, we have to begin to move away from the traditions that have been laid out um, you know, by the academy and find a way to center the humanity and center racial justice in the work that we're doing.
0: And you, you do, as you were just saying, you, you get in contact with a descendant of, of Matthew Williams. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that process and how that's sort of incorporated into the work that you're doing.
2: Sure. As I mentioned, I try to... Um, Uh, I played a genealogist, as I would say, um, as much as I could. I did the best I could with Ancestry and these other resources, but I hit a wall at a certain point. And I was getting pretty good at it because, as I mentioned, for all of the individuals you'll see that I name in my book, um, for the most part, with maybe one or two exceptions, I did genealogical research on the individuals who gave testimonies, who gave statements, um, both black and white. Um, I really sought out to utilize those same resources to identify Matthew Williams, but I hit a wall. And so um, I hired a professional master genealogist by the name of Demeter Green, who um, was able to take everything that I had pulled together and she was able to locate um, the family of Matthew Williams and develop a pedigree as well within I would say a month and a half or so. She then pointed me to, to Miss Jeannie Jones, who um, I ended up calling, it I think one of her her aunt, who uh, who got the story a little wrong, and she thought that someone was actually lynched today. And so Miss Jones calls me in a frantic, you know, panic, saying, "What's going on? My aunt called and said someone's being lynched." And this is when I had to kind of reassure her that this was a relative, a long lost relative, that had been lynched and. From this day forward, Miss Jones has been involved in the research work, um, the work of the, the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and we also have a um, film series that um, will be released very soon um, that um, a pilot we released on the anniversary of Matthew Williams' death that Miss Jones was a part of as well.
0: Okay, wonderful. And so I, I wonder, what, what do you want readers to take away after reading your book?
2: Sure. So I think... One of the things I really want readers to take away, I want readers to understand um, that the, the lie that has been allowed to persist surrounding racial terror lynchings and racial violence can no longer continue to thrive and to live. This lie that lynchings took place at the hands of persons unknown. Um, Black communities who I've worked with in this region um, hold within themselves stories um, and trauma that um, is not validated because we because records are not designed to validate their stories, and they're not kept in a manner that validates their stories in, in these cases. And so, as a result, um, they um, so much of this work um, is unknown, and so much of this this story is unknown. And so, um, that's very important for us to make sure that we're centering the lived experiences of those who um, have experienced this racial trauma and this racial terror, and we take their words and begin to do formal investigations and do real research to help document and salvage the humanity of these victims and um, the members of their community. One of the things that my book does, it highlights um, both black and white eyewitnesses to this um, crime. And one of the individuals that um, my book identifies is um, Mr. Maslin Pinkett. Maslin Pinkett is a professor at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Um, and surprisingly, um, we discovered that Mr. Pinkett was also the, um, he's also the great-grandfather of Jada Pinkett Smith. Um, and this has been verified by genealogists. Um, and the reason why Mr. Pinkett is significant, because he speaks out directly um, in court naming members of the mob into the actual attorney general. And as we look at this attack or assault on truth-telling in this um, post-Trump era, um, it is becoming growing a growing concern of mine as a historian um, that we are seeking to erase these stories um, and, of, of um, racial terror and racial violence. Um, When we erase and um, try to move past these events or overlook them or erase, as I think is a better term, we overlook those who were on the right side of history as well. Those such as Mr. Pinkett, who spoke out and spoke out against justice, but also any others, um, any whites or others um, who may have spoken out on the right side and doing so. And so I hope that my work will inspire um, communities to embrace. Um, the truth associated with their past, and embrace um, assessing the role in which their communities play in um, oppressing marginalized communities historically.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely needed at this point in time. Uh, Well, Dr. Chavis, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'll ask you just one final question. Uh, What are you working on now?
2: Well, so I I just got back from Salisbury, Maryland, and so I'm working directly in the community. We're still filming for our project, but um, I'm working specifically as well to um, promote restorative justice efforts in the community. And as a result of the research um, from the book, the city of Salisbury has established a truth commission um, designed to investigate the racial terror and racial violence has been targeted at the specific community. And so I'm advising and working with local activists and local leaders um, in the establishment of that committee. And I spend time with uh, my students um, at George Mason University who are working um, to continue to support this community. So it's beyond the book. It's really about, again, as I mentioned, as a historian, taking what we do in the work and research and Bringing it to life to promote racial justice and social transformation.
0: Absolutely, and uh, two quick questions just off of that. Um, Does the project that you're working on, that's beyond this book, does that have a title?
2: Yes, Hidden in Full View is the title. Wonderful. Yes, Hidden in Full View.
0: Okay, perfect. And then secondly, I wonder, with the work that you're doing that's sort of outside just the scholarship portion of it, which I think is so pushed uh, for academics and for uh, sort of early career scholars as well, uh, I wonder if you have any words of advice for people that are, that are interested in taking their scholarship beyond just the page and sort of having it affect the real world.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things is that I've started to do as I um, have begun to really dive into the practice-based work and the activism where it's work is to recognize that the things that um, are become come natural to us in terms of the ways in which we engage with communities based on the frames in which we have um, have understood and studied the theories in which we've studied and understood around anti-racism and classism sexism etc as we begin to practice based on the um, our understanding of these theories and uh, we have to Reflect on the practice work, and so for me, something as simple as beginning to um, journal daily and reflect on um, the experiences that I've been that I went through. I mean, what I, what am I employing? How am I coming to the conversation? So, really having to reflect. I've, you know, it's all easy for us to think about how we review and reflect and analyze, you know, theory, literature, and things like that. But in terms of our own actions and behaviors, taking a real time account for um, the practice work and the activism that we're doing and doing that through reflective practice is, is very important. And I think it starts with is easily journaling and just working through and reflecting on um, the work that you are getting into, but you have to start somewhere. um, And as you make the transition from, you know, theory to practice or from, you know, theory to activism, then, um, begin starting to reflect and take an account of um, this, the the leap that you're taking
0: wonderful well uh dr charles chavis the author of the silent shore the lynching of matthew williams the politics of racism in the free state uh, i want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed it and i hope you take care
2: thank you so much amari